We're in uh, 1 Timothy. I hope by now, um, if you've been coming at all the last few weeks, you've had a chance to read through all of 1 Timothy. It doesn't take very long. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it. You ought to do it every few weeks. Just read through 1 Timothy. It doesn't take but 10, 15 minutes maybe. Uh, I know I say, you know, Sunday I'm saying you need to read one of the Gospels every three months. You need you know, be fluent in the Gospels. And I kind of give you a lot of things you should read in the New Testament. But you really should. And let me just say this. Everybody has their own way of doing it. It is okay if you don't just read every day for five minutes or ten. Sometimes the easiest way is to block out a chunk of time during the week and just sit down and read. And I encourage you to do that. And if you really struggle reading, you can now get it audio. And uh, on a, if you have a smart device, version, uh, the version Bible has a uh, has, you can do it audio. So in 1 Timothy, we've already looked at it. One of the last letters Paul wrote after he was released from prison at the end of Acts, at the book of Acts. Um, he wrote it to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. Um, he wrote it because there were problems going on. There was false teachers with false teaching. We looked a little bit at that last week. Most likely these were people, whether Gentile or Jew, but they were adopting certain Jewish tendencies, certain, uh, I say tendencies, what they were doing basically was they were taking genealogies, um, they were trying to take some legalism. It was just kind of a mixture of things. We'll see more of it as, as we go through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. But uh, they, they, it, was, it was just one of those things that they were, were, we were bringing, this, you know, myths and genealogies, and, and, and so it was just leading people astray. Verse 12, Paul kind of comes back a little bit on uh, chapter 1. You know, he, he began, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, and God our Savior called me. In verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me. Now, he uses the formal terminology of Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ, you know, the Messiah, Jesus, his name, Lord, that he is God. And he says he's given me strength. He's built me up. And notice, notice why he has done that. Because he considered me faithful. Now, I want to be sure that we understand. Paul never looks at anything about his relationship with Jesus as being based on merit of something he has done or accomplished. He will always honor the Lord as having put him where he needs to be. Paul is acknowledging, though, that he has been faithful in serving God. Now, by this time, you know, Paul's been a Christian for 30 years. He has endured unbelievable suffering. So he has been faithful in serving the Lord. And because he has been faithful, he's not saying that God has honored him. He is not saying that God has put him as a place of an apostle. Here's what he says. The Lord Jesus Christ has given me strength. And notice what he has given him strength for. Putting me, he says, into service. He didn't say the Lord has honored my faithfulness by giving me rest. I'm able to retire. Timothy, you and Titus and you know, Silas and Luke and other guys can take it. He says, no, what he has strengthened me to do is to give me service. Now, the word for service is our same word for deacon. And, uh, and I'm going to talk in a few weeks when we come to 1 Timothy 3 about overseers and deacons and all that. Uh, but I, I want to make some comments about the word uh, diakonion, which is, which is used here. Um, it is a very general word to minister or to serve on behalf of God or others. It is a very frequent word. 
the technical concept of deacon is extremely rare. I'll talk about that more later, so I'm not going to go into all that now. But the concept of serving on ministering is quite common. And here's what I want you to understand. All of us are called by God to serve. All of us. It is not reserved for me. In fact, our word minister, you know, comes from this word. It is not reserved for me. It certainly isn't reserved for deacons. Because then it would never get done if it was. <laughs> I was a cheap, gratuitous dig, I know. And I had no problem doing it. Um, it wasn't true, I wouldn't have said it. Um, I'm just kidding. You know, if it was left up to pastors and deacons, it would never get done. It is the responsibility of all of us to serve our Lord to serve one another and to serve those who are not followers of Christ. And when you come to a place in your spiritual walk with Christ that you understand you are called to serve, you will find great joy in your Christian faith, even in suffering. I pray every day to the Lord Give me the heart of a true pastor and give me the spirit of a true servant. Because I know on my own, I don't have the spirit of a servant. I have the spirit of a master. And I need to pray every day to serve. Paul says, he has strengthened me to serve. Notice what he says. Even though I was previously, get this, and he gives it kind of in a, in a moving order, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. It had been 30 years since Paul had persecuted the church, but he never forgot it. He said, I was a blasphemer, not as a Pharisee because he honored God, but because he blasphemed or slandered Jesus. He said, I was a persecutor of the church, that's what he meant, who pursued it and I was violent. A few weeks ago in my message that started off the series on Paul, we talked about that, that a little bit. I, Paul was certainly forgiven. But evidently Paul never forgot what he once was. Because in doing that, he honored Christ because he, so, he saved him out of that worst of lives. I understand what it is that we're forgiven. But sometimes I recognize that there are things in my past it's hard to let go in the sense that it's always there. And I'm amazed. And I say that not because it, 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 it traumatizes me or I can't get past it or all that, but I'm always amazed that God would call me to pastor. I know some of you are amazed that God has called me to pastor. But look at his options. <laughs> I think understanding, and nobody knows me better than me except my wife, because I, mean, I know all my faults, but my wife knows something I'm not aware of, evidently. 
But the fact that he is able, don't put your arm around her now, bud. Just don't, you can do that earlier. You can just, just go trying to disciple this young guy and how to make it work. But, but the fact that he can still use us, it's amazing. But then I think, well, who else is he going to use? What's left? He says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He said, I, I was ignorant. I, I didn't know Jesus. I had unbelief. He said, he's not excusing himself. I mean, there are sins of, of, of ignorance. There are sins that are willful that you know. He's just saying, I didn't know Jesus. And, and, I, and, and my sin was great. But it was, it was because I was an unbeliever. And then in verse 14, he says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He says, grace and abundance alongside of faith and love which are only in Christ Jesus. This, these verses are phenomenally deep in their teaching and doctrine. He, he mentions then grace and faith and love. He prioritizes grace because of that what saved him. But he mentions it because grace is equal with, you know, faith and love. They come. Notice they're all found in one place, Jesus. In the realm of or in the location of Jesus. And notice there is an abundance. The grace, which is, which is uh, you know, the, the classic definition is the unmerited favor of God, which is good. It's just God's kindly disposition towards us. The faith, which is the trust and confidence to give our life in the love, which is that sacrificial love. All of that comes from Jesus. This is always important. I always want to stress this in Baptist life because I, was, I grew up Southern Baptist and one of the things we sometimes said, whether foolishly not thinking, because we didn't want to be associated with Presbyterians who, you know, who were Calvinists. And by you know, what a horrible thing that would be, even though technically Baptists are all Calvinists, they just don't know it. Is that amen because you don't know it or because we're all Calvinists? <laughs> Some of you don't like that. I realize that. But trust me, if you give me five minutes, I'll convince you what you really are. My, we used to say, God supplies the grace and we supply the faith. No, 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 no. God gives me grace. God gives me faith. God gives me love. I am a spiritually dead person incapable and incompetent of coming up with any of that. Now, I still have to exercise faith. I never exercise grace. I mean, I grace towards you, but I'm talking about what the grace God gives. But I have to exercise faith, and I have to demonstrate love. I get that. But I know it comes from God. So when I pray, you know, Lord, help me to love them. I can't love them on my own. Isn't that right? Terry. <clears throat> he knows because he and I come from that same generation, the same mindset. I ain't going to love him. That, that comes from God. I can't generate love towards someone. He generates that within me. Now, it's an abundance. It's not, it's not measurable. I don't have 77% of grace today and 48% of faith and 5% of love. I have all of it. All of it. It's immeasurable, but I don't always use it. 
I don't always use the unbelievable grace and faith and love that Christ has given me. That's my fault. It's your fault. You don't have it. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. Five times in 1 Timothy, he's going to say it's a trustworthy statement. Sometimes a trustworthy statement comes before the phrase. Sometimes after the phrase. Here is after the phrase. It means something that is true, that you can have confidence in. He says it deserves full acceptance. And then he gives an amazing sentence. You can bank on it. You can trust it. It's fully acceptable. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amazing. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. He says that. I came to seek and save the lost. Christianity is not complicated. We make it complicated. I've heard more dumb things about why Jesus came and do this. He didn't come to end hunger because he didn't do it. He didn't come to bring peace to the world. Didn't do it. Came to save people who are sinners. Oh, that he has done. Everyone can be saved. Not everyone can live in peace. Not everyone can go to bed full. Not everyone can have money in the bank. But everyone can come to Jesus. Our message is Jesus. I may say this Sunday, I don't know, but I was reading something yesterday. Keith Baldrige, who's a a church planter, pastor, at uh, Livingstone Church up in, uh, outside Denver, who we were partner with, you know, we, we partner with those guys. He put something, he, he made a comment, he shared a comment someone else made. When people are not followers of Christ, lost people come to the church. They, are, they, they come to church because they want to learn about Jesus and they want to hear sermons, you know, from the, the Bible. They don't want to know life hacks to make it easier or to be entertained. They get that anywhere. People want to know Jesus. They come wanting to know Jesus because only he can save them. But he says this, he said sinners among whom I am foremost, or I am the greatest. The word foremost means the first. I am the first. Now, he didn't go measure all the sinners. He didn't do a survey. He's not being, you know, a false humility. Paul Paul looked at his life. He said, I persecuted. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And here I am now with the privilege of, of, of going around sharing Jesus, suffering for Jesus. I was the first I am the most sinful of sinful people. I am the first. And yet he says, verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy. The mercy is that unbelievable compassion of God. My, uh, one of my seminary professors, who was, uh, when I was working on my uh, doctorate, he was actually my, uh, he was my seminary advisor. And a just kind man. Uh, Dr. Thomas Ari taught me a lot of New Testament. He said this about mercy. He said, mercy is love in action. Mercy is love in action. You, you have got to be able to show people mercy. Because how else can you love them if you show them no mercy? One way I show people mercy is you know, sharing Jesus with them. Certainly, I've you know, forgiven when they wrong me or I ask them for to forgive me. But I look at people sometimes and I see people's life and I'm just like, man, they need mercy. We have that message. 
that they can experience mercy because life is an unbelievable burden. You know, life is hard. You know, when, when, when you know, the little one of kids, life is easy and fun. You know, and you think it's hard because the whole world's coming across because somebody doesn't like them. Ah, whatever. You get to a certain age. It's hard, hard to get up. Hard to comb your hair. Hard to lose weight. Hard to deal with people. And it's hard to overcome our past without Jesus. People need mercy. And Christ has that mercy. He says, I found mercy. And then he uses the phrase, so that. And the phrase, so that, is, comes, is a Greek clause. And I share this with a lot, a little hidden clause. It has to do with purpose or result. Here, probably purpose, result. So that the result in me, as the foremost sinner of Jesus Christ, that he can demonstrate his perfect patience, his endurance. The word of patience is endurance. He says, in me, by a found mercy, so that in me, Jesus, might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He said, listen, what he's saying is this. If Jesus can save me, he can save anyone. He showed mercy in my life. Why did he do that? Why did he say, Paul, that persecutor? In a nutshell, Paul is saying, because if he can save me, well, he can save you. And the person down the street from you who you think is probably not worth saving because they act weird, look weird, dress weird, whatever. They're all worth saving to Jesus. So they can believe, have faith. And I share all the time, you know, believe is a verb. You know, you know, it's, just, it's just they can have faith in Jesus. So they can come to Jesus and completely and totally trust him. The word faith is a noun, the believe is a verb, same word in Greek, basically. It's to take your life and give it. They can do that. Why? For eternal life. You know, here's the thing about eternal life. It's forever. And I'm always amazed when people say, when you can lose your salvation, how do you lose something that Christ gives you forever? Now, I do believe that there are people who say they're saved who are not saved. I get that. You can't, you can't lose what you don't have I had a conversation with the free will Baptist one time. A free will Baptist, you know what a free will Baptist is, is they believe the whole, you know, God gives the grace, I give the faith. And they also believe you can renounce your faith and lose your salvation. He was saying something. I just looked at him and I said, Ron, you can't lose what you don't have, brother. The people you describe don't have faith. They faked faith. The word eternal, by definition, means forever. Life, Zoe, is life as it should always be. Jesus says, I give you eternal life. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If, if in John 13, I mean, John, John 10, Jesus says, in verse 27, my sheep, sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They shall by no means perish, which is to be destroyed. No one can snatch them, pull them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me. No one can snatch them in my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. He's saying, Jesus is saying, you cannot possibly lose your eternal life. And Paul says, I have. And this is what we offer people. 
I know, you know, there, there's some discussion whether we should, you know, simply look at the standpoint of eternal life as a way, to, you know, people, you need to get saved so you can have eternal life. And, and we should look for other reasons for people to get saved, and I got all that. In the end, if life is eternal, when I leave this life, I'm going somewhere. And that's what really matters. I'm only going to be here a short time. And this time's not much, and the time's getting shorter. But I'm going to be there forever. Everybody spends forever somewhere. We have a message for them. Paul is saying to them, listen to me. Jesus saved me. If he saves me, he'll save you forever. And then he gives a doxology of praise. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. To God, to our Lord, be the glory. Only glory. Our purpose in life is to bring honor and glory to God. Real quick, I want to go through verse 18 through 20. Because he's going to deal with two of the false teachers. This command I entrust, or I give, or or I replace upon you, Timothy, he calls me my son. It's his son in faith. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Um, A couple of places, Paul talks about when Timothy was saved, that there was a time that they, they came to Timothy, they set him aside, the prophecies concerning him. Don't, you know, I would not think of, and some do, that people prophesied that what he would do in the future. We might just say about the message preached concerning you. When, when I was uh, set aside and ordained, they preached messages, they gave charges. You know, when we, are, you know, we ordain a couple of guys in the ministry, we give them a charge. You know, that's the kind of the idea. And, and let me just say this. Um, a lot of people call it his ordination, I guess. I just, let me just make this comment about ordination. Because it's here and I want to do it. The older I get, the more I'm, I, <laughs> this may sound like sacrilege. I just don't know that ordination is that big a deal. In, in, in Baptist life, let me make this clear. I'm talking about Baptist life. You take me to Joe, you know, Brian, Mike, who I don't know who else is in here. You, you ordain us, you set us aside. And I get it, I know. And we do it with deacons. You know, and there's some argument to be made for pastors. I get it. Like Timothy, I don't think there's any argument, biblical one, to make really set it aside for deacons. I think that's Baptist tradition. And what we do is we have gotten to the point where we're elevating people. And I see that all the time. I mean, I, I cannot tell you my ministry how many times I've had guys come and say, you know, and, 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 and I promise I'm not picking on deacons. So you guys that are deacons, I'm not picking on you. So don't, don't feel that. Well, you. But the rest of you don't feel that way. You know, you know I've had guys at this church or other churches, you know, pastor, I'm, you know, I'm a guest, I'm going to join in, I'm so-and-so. I was a deacon in my last church. And I'm like, okay, so what does that exactly mean to me? I think in our minds, we have, we have elevated people understand this. The people they elevated caused them the problems. Most of the churches that I pastored, the last three churches, they had problems, severe problems. That's why they called me. Because no one else will take me but a church with problems. And almost across the board, the problems were caused by the people. They elevated and set aside. It was not caused 
by the everyday average person. Timothy, we set you aside to fight the good fight. Oh, by the way, Timothy, that's where you're at right now. You're about to fight the good fight. He's fixing to tell him, this is the fight you're going to fight, brother. So he says this, keeping faith and a good conscience. The idea of good conscience is moral. Keeping faith, keeping your faith in Christ with a good conscience. There is a moral quality to who we are. We need to have a good conscience. Now, I don't know that you need to let your conscience be your guy. That's Pinocchio, and that didn't turn out well for him. But here's the thing. As a Christian who has the Holy Spirit residing within me, understanding is the Holy Spirit that moves my conscience. If I understand it that way, and I do, yeah, that's important that I have that. Notice what he says. The faith in the good conscience, the moral life. Some have rejected and notice what he says. They have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their faith has been destroyed. Now, I don't know if this means they were never truly a believer. And so by doing all this, they destroyed their chances to believe. I don't know if it means they were a believer, but they have so ruined their credibility. It could be that. It doesn't mean you're ever going to lose your salvation. There are plenty of people who are believers who do something, it causes trouble, whatever, and it, and it really hurts the faith. Listen, I can't tell you the number of people I know that are followers of Christ who've caused problems, who caused fights in the church, who caused difficulty in the church. They've ruined their credibility. <laughs> he says among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus is mentioned, uh, I think, in 2 Timothy also. Notice what he says whom I handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So whatever they did was considered blasphemy. So, well, you know, so whatever, and, and so probably in their false teaching, they were slandering and renouncing what it means to follow Jesus. If you understand taking the genealogies and myths and all that and adding it to salvation, they were doing that. Handing over to Satan, it's similar to what is said in 1 Corinthians about the, in five, he's the guy who committed incest, I've given them over to Satan. And what it means is this, not that he's, you know, cursing him, you know, he's not taking a voodoo doll and stabbing him and all that. It means I've put them outside the church. If they want to live like they're following Satan, they can. And so here's the thing, back then, and you look at, 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 at here in Ephesus, overwhelmingly pagan, very few Christians, they had one church within different homes. And what he's basically saying is this, it is my judgment that you remove them from the church and let them live among the pagans. The purpose being them realizing that they need the fellowship of the church, that they repent and come back. In 1 Corinthians, when you read 2 Corinthians, that was successful. The guy came back. Restore him. It doesn't appear that Hymenaeus it was. And so let me just say this. Let me just got a, a couple of minutes. I don't want to go over that is not something that I think we can do necessarily today. If I place you outside the church, you can go find another church. It's not hard. And there are times I would encourage people to do that. But I do think that we and I in particular as pastor have a responsibility to make sure people don't hurt this church. 
Sometimes the best way for them not to hurt this church is to leave the church. I'm not concerned about, you know, I don't, I don't like, you know, all our bylaws have discipline. I don't, I don't, because we don't do that well. We don't do it consistently. I mean, my, my, my past little church in Middle Springs, you know, a brand new convert just came to Jesus, but he was playing, play guitar. He's playing in a bar, trying to make a living, and they just kicked him out of the church. Brand new believer kicked him out of the church because he played music in a bar. Now, we can't have that happen in our church. It's just why you only have 25 people, which is true. I'm not kidding. No, it's just like, that was a disaster. That was the worst 14 months of my life. And I was too young to say what I should have said. Today I would say it, but I'm... You've got to do everything you can to reconcile people, redeem them, bring them back. But if someone's going to hurt the church, not the guy playing in a bar, <laughs> I don't know how many people we have left here. If you went to a bar and we said you can't come back, we'd lose most of our church probably. <laughs> but if someone is hurting the church, it's okay to let them go. And I have, including here, tried to reconcile with them. And in the end, encourage them to find somewhere else they can go. Because you can't have people hurt the church. And one of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to make sure false teachers and false teachings don't happen. So here you have this beautiful passage. I hope you go back and you know, read all of 1 Timothy, and all of 1 Timothy chapter 1 in particular. You know, Paul starting off. Timothy, he's sent there. You got some false teachers. You got to deal with them. Here's a little bit of the problems that's going on. Part of the problems is teaching, genealogies and myths, and part of the problem is, pe- is people. Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's several Alexanders listed in the Bible. Don't try to figure it out. Man, of all the reasons to be listed in the New Testament, to have your name listed because you caused trouble, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> 